Welcome, dear listeners, to another fascinating episode of the London History Podcast, where we delve into the vibrant and diverse past of this great city. I am your host, Hazel Baker, a qualified London tour guide and founder of LondonGuidedWalks.co.uk. Whether you're a born and bred Londoner or a curious listener, join us on a journey through time as we explore the city together. Each episode is supported by show notes, transcripts, photos and further reading, all to be found on our website. If you enjoy what we do, then you'll love our guided walks and private tours that we offer throughout the year, all bookable online at londonguidedwalks.co.uk. Subscribe now to never miss an episode. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review and rating to help spread the word to other history lovers. For the last seven or so episodes, we have been exploring Victorian London. And now for something completely different. Today, we're going to dim the lights and step back in time exploring the smoke-filled, jazz-infused London nightclubs of the roaring 1920s and tumultuous 1930s. These were places where new music was forged, societal norms were challenged and the intoxicating glamour of the era unfolded under the warm glow of chandeliers. For this enthralling journey into the past, we are accompanied by a distinguished guest, a scholar whose pen dances as smoothly on paper as the flappers did on those long-ago dance floors. Please welcome historian, author and expert on British popular culture, Lucy Santos. With her extensive knowledge and passion, we'll delve into the hidden histories of these clubs, uncovering stories of the people who frequented them and ran them, the culture they created and the impact they had on London society during the interwar years. We'll discover how these clubs, both celebrated and notorious, formed a microcosm of the larger societal changes in London, reflecting the shifting dynamics of class, race and gender. From the sophistication of the Kit Kat Club, famed for its membership of artists and intellectuals, to the eclectic sounds and sights of the Shim Sham Club in Soho, with jazz and the emerging Lindy Hop dance scene brought diverse crowds together. Our exploration today will take us to the heart of an exciting era. So ladies and gentlemen, put on your dancing shoes Cue that jazz and join us as we dive into the smoky allure of London's nightclubs in the 1920s and 30s. Stay tuned, the night is young and the history is rich. Hello Lucy. Hello, nice to be here. Now, I'm looking forward to this one for a number of reasons. Knowing that you were coming on, I thought I'd do a little bit of reading and I realised how much I didn't know. So I'm so glad that you're here to fill in so many of the gaps for us. So it might be worth, um, first of all, setting the scene and maybe starting with Tango Tees. So we are in around about 1912 and obviously we are in London. Now Tango, that 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 wonderful, wonderful, gorgeous dance, has uh, moved from Argentina to Paris and then well, all the smart people 
are in Paris. And when they come to London or when Londoners go to Paris, they see these wonderful dancers and they want part of it. So before this, nightlife in London hasn't been... Well, it hasn't been based around dancing or nightclubs um, in the way that we're going to talk about, you know, for the rest of this episode. Um, there, there are a few restaurants, there are places to go, obviously, but these tango dancers are the first real opportunities uh, for, for sort of public dancing in, in the 20th century. Now, they are, so these tango dancers, it is as just as as it sounds, so you go to a place, dance the tango. Tango, uh, you can have cups of tea as well, um, because these are dry events, so these aren't alcohol-based events. They're often in the afternoon or in the early evening, sometimes they're after dinner as well. Um, so you'll go, um, and one of the places in, in London that offered these tango teas was the Savoy. So it's already a hotel. It was established in the uh, 1880s, definitely by the 1890s. So it's already a place, but they start doing these sort of pop-up tango dancers. Now, these are really successful. Um, and then around about 1914, we start seeing actual purpose-designed purpose dance clubs springing up. So one of those was called um, the 400 Club, and it was on Old Bond Street. And this opened actually in October 1913. Now, it was in uh, an old art gallery, and it had been converted into, into, a, into a, a night spot. Um, so it was, it was actually sort of more like a, a supper club. So you'd have supper there, and then you would dance the tango into the relatively early hours. Um, now... There was other places that sprung up as well. There was the Lotus Club and Murray's on Beak Street as well. Now, Murray's actually goes into the 50s and 60s. It ends up being a very famous cabaret. Um, now, these are all places which are essentially uh, licensed clubs with a membership. So you have to have a membership to, to be there, to dance there, to eat there. And they are very exclusive and very expensive places to be. Um, so... Around about this time, we start seeing licensing coming in for them as well. So pretty much anyone who wanted to could open up a club um, and you'd have to pay five pounds and, and you would have to register it as a, a police court or a, a petty sessional court, I think it's called. Um, so, yeah, these are these are essentially the extensions of those private members clubs that you find in Mayfair um, you know, certainly in the um, in the century beforehand, um, and the key thing here is they are private. They are private premises, so they're private premises and highly uh, exclusive uh, for the wealthy upper class uh, upper classes only. And so this was kind of like a, maybe the, the the clubs were kind of an, a need to know basis. You know, they're not going to be advertising, are they? Are they? Um, well, no, not really. Um, I've for these early clubs, I found it quite difficult to find any adverts for them. I mean, one thing to say right at the start is that nightclubs then and now are ephemeral things. You know, um, I don't think... I, well, I was thinking about the nightclubs of London in the 90s when I uh, was a teenage going, teenager going out there. And I was trying to... Trying to uh, there was one I particularly remember on Oxford Street, um, and I, I became obsessed recently thinking, oh, what about if it was actually one of the old clubs that I've been researching from the 30s and I vaguely remember it? Of course it's not. Um, but I couldn't find a trace of it. You know, I, I couldn't really remember what it was called, couldn't really remember where it was. 
Um, <laughs> yeah. And there was nothing really seemed to survive of it, you know. Um, in terms of these early nightclubs, uh, sometimes, and we'll talk about it later, you'll find membership cards. Um, and the Museum of London um, has a great collection of membership cards from the 20s and 30s. It was one man who, um, I can't remember who he was, but he was um, incredibly rich and was a member of like 20 of all these really fancy clubs. Um, and they've got this wonderful collection of all of his membership cards. Um, his name was Emil Klaber, Klaber. Yeah, so he was a member of all of these these clubs, and and often it is it is the the uh, the membership cards that you occasionally come across, or um, with some of these private members clubs, they have oh that, that Museum of London collection has teeny tiny little pocket booklets um, of all the rules of the of the clubs for some of them as well. So you know the the articles of association and the and memorandum, and you know what you're signing up for when you join the clubs. Very little else and very few adverts um, for these nightclubs. You'll see adverts uh, going into the 20s and 30s and obviously onwards for cabaret clubs. You'll see adverts for restaurants that have cabarets and all those sort of different combinations. But the the, the nightclub nightclubs um, tend to be more word of mouth than anything. Or who knows, maybe there was people standing in Leicester Square with flyers giving them out to people who were dressed very smartly. I, I don't know. There's, there's no real evidence of that. It's interesting, isn't it? When you're running a business, you have, um, you know, they talk about having a, a USP, a unique selling point. Um, but you also, yeah, there's, a, there's a challenge of being exclusive, but not so exclusive that people don't know about you. Well, certainly with these early clubs, um, you know, it is just for the top level of society. Um, and, you know, word will get around uh, around them. So you don't need to advertise them. What you do need is one very smart person to go to it and then the rest will follow. Um, the key bit of it was if you were one of those smart sets, so if you were one of the, the bright young things um, and you opened your own club, you could always guarantee that you would get... Uh, uh, people coming in so there was a uh, David Tennant who was one of the bright young people um, and he um, opened a club called the Gargoyle Club um, which is oh 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 I'd say Dean Street yes Dean Street yes <laughs> that one I know <laughs> yes uh, yeah he opened the Gargoyle Club in, in the early 20s and you know he was he was part of the smart set. He was incredibly um, well connected, so people started coming because they wanted to be, you know, where the bright young people are. So he's basically the USP for his club, then, isn't he? He's the he's the face, and he he's what people want to come. What about um, um, other clubs as well? Did they have a particular um, draw for for certain clientele? Um, they did seem they they seem to vary. So. Um, some of it was, like I said, you know, the person who owned it. It was someone who um, was part of something, um, whether it was an artistic uh, circle or uh, society or, you know, was married to someone or knew someone or, you know, there was those places. Well, there was also the places where uh, Prince of Wales, for instance, you know, wherever he was, 
people wanted to go. So there, mm. there was um, really good examples of people calling in favours of favours to get guarantee that the Prince of Wales will um, be at their club on opening night. Um, and, you know, it seems that he would have gone anywhere for anything as long as there was, uh, you know, dancing and music and and uh, good times guaranteed. So you really, you know, it, it is those things. Um Sometimes you'll read about places that uh, introduce new technology, for instance, and that starts uh, to intrigue people uh, to go to. So uh, we have somewhere like um, the Silver Slipper, which opened in 1927, I believe. It, it had a, a glass dance floor with lights underneath that flashed. Um, like so Saturday Night Fever? Exactly like Saturday Night Fever. Oh, oh wow. So, you know, I, I don't, I've never seen an example of a 30s flashing dance club. I've certainly danced on a 70s one. Um, but it was described as uh, waves of, of, of light underneath. So I'm not sure if it's like, uh, <laughs> I'm actually doing Saturday Night Fever hand movements. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's like flashes of, you know, the, the 70s ones are usually like each square flashes. Yeah. Uh, something different. But this one, the 30s ones, waves of light. So I wonder if it's like ripples or something. You're not sure, you know, these things don't survive. You can't, uh, you can't see them. You uh, you can only go on descriptions. Um, so, yeah, so you get places where, you know, somewhere has the new dance floor or air conditioning. That's a key mm. one, air conditioning. When they start introducing air conditioning to clubs, um, really from early 20s, I think it is, especially in those summer months, people want to mm-hmm. go there. Um, yeah, so there's all sorts of reasons why people make the decision, but it is usually because the smart set are there, it's a place to be seen, and it's it's gorgeous in some way. And and how did clubs have their own sort of um, dress code, or did they lend themselves to a particular style of, style of, of fashion? As well, because like you see, like now on the streets, even at five o'clock on a Saturday, you can you can see those who are going to go clubbing. It's quite they've got a sort of uniform, haven't they? Yeah. Um, well, um, it would definitely be most of these clubs would be black tie. So um, you see, you see uh, people being uh, not allowed entrance because they're not fully you know fully kitted out. Um, so on the whole, it's uh, you know the smartest of smart dress. Like I said, this this is the upper class society, um, and they you know and this would be be normal. I mean, so you would um, there's you can read autobiographies from people who would spend um, a day to um, spend a day um, or an evening. So they'd have dinner in one of the big mansions around um, uh, you know like uh, Hyde Park area or anything. So they uh-huh. would. Uh, have have dinner at Lady So-and-So's um, and then they might go to the theatre and then after that they might go to one uh, another club and then another club and then another club and you know all through the course of that evening that would be smart dress wouldn't it so mm-hmm. um, you know that 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 is um yeah, I, you don't. You start seeing a sort of lessening of of the smart dress um, as you go into the twenties and thirties, but it would always be best dressed, um, and I think that is something we kind of forget. Um, you know, even when you go to the theatre in the twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, people would dress up. Um, you know, you would always always put on the best clothes that you owned to go to these places, the smartest, the most fashionable. Um, and I know we still do in a in a way, but it, it it's it's different now, isn't it? Yes, yeah, very different. But it sounds like a 
I mean, I suppose they don't. The, the people that are going to these clubs don't have to get um, up for work in the morning. No, yeah, that, well, yeah, that's the thing. Maybe, well, maybe they do, but you know, they're they're a, uh, they've got a the editor of the of the the Times or something. I don't know. You know, they can they can rock into the office late. No one's really policing them and telling them um, telling them what to do or where to be. So yeah, it is. It's it's the 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 leisured rich on the whole. Yeah, I suppose also the age has a. You know, when we were twenty, we could bounce back from a, a night out <laughs> without being too worse oh, for wear. Yes, quite. And it, yeah, it is important to to remember that. Yeah, because I, I do tend to be like, oh, they're just so rich; they don't need to worry. But yeah, you you read you read uh, autobiographies, you read the books. They are getting up the next morning, probably to go and have tea with the relatives or something. But they are, yeah, much more energy than I can remember ever having. <laughs> <laughs> and, when, and when we're talking about the people who the the, the clients uh, frequenting these these venues, what kind of age are they? Because you know we're talking uh, flappers, but also they're not they're not kids, are they? No, I mean, um, well, again, it's. You do you do see some uh, young people going, you know, eighteens, nineteens, twenties. But it is also it is a place where it would be perfectly normal for someone in their mid forties to go to a uh, to a nightclub like this. Mm. Um, but often, I mean, often really, because these places have chairs and tables. Oh, oh I know how to treat you. Well, <laughs> I mean, sit down, and um, you can, you know, it's. Some most of these are sort of cabaret style things, aren't they? So you'll you can go and have a table, and it's your table that night, and there's chairs, and you can just sit there and you can dance if you want. But if mm. you don't, you know, that's one of the main differences I think about these nightclubs then and now is chairs and tables. But that might be just because I'm in my mid forties. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think oh, it sounds very appealing, and also I suppose with the membership fee. The, the businesses aren't having to worry about churning people out like they do nowadays. You know, there's no nowhere to, to sit. You've got to stand, of course, in your heels. That's just impossible after <laughs> half an hour anyway. And so you go somewhere else um, just to, to get the more money in. And who are the, the, the big people that we, we know that um, we're going to these these nightclubs then? Have we got any memoirs or uh, diaries? Yeah, there's, there's, quite, there's, there's quite a few, actually. Um and and there are quite a few. They don't talk too much about the nightclubs as such, um, mm. which is again I find very frustrating. They, they'll talk about restaurants again, so um, they'll talk. Uh, you know, you get the, the you get memoirs where they they spend pages and pages talking about the the scene and the vibes um, at the um, Cafe Royale, for instance. So they'll, mm-hmm. they'll talk about they'll spend. Oh, you know, Augustus Johns was over there or something, like three pages of that. Um, but nightclubs, it just tends to be things they say, like, dropped into the wherever, um, popped into blah, blah, blah. Um, maybe there might be a little bit of a gossip about someone. Um, mm-hmm. that's what we do have, which is really good, though, is a few memoirs of the people who ran the clubs. Um, and... They are absolutely wonderful. So there's a woman called Kate Merrick who ran the 43 Club, uh, and we have her memoir. 
Um, and in it, uh, I mean, it was it was a big scandal when she wrote it at the time. Uh, it was just before she died. She, she'd written these memoirs where she sort of indicated that she was going to give all the secrets of all the her celebrity and important clientele because she had clubs for 20 years um, and had been uh, giving people illicit booze, sneaking them out of the back if there was a police raid. Uh, you know, obviously there's going to be more indiscretions that she would have witnessed people coming with their, you know, going to clubs without their, with someone who's not their partner. Mm-hmm. She had hostesses, she had a whole group of, uh, they were called Merrick's Maids, uh, and they were dance hostesses. Um, there's, a, there's a little bit of a, a blurred line at this period because dance hostesses are women who will be at these clubs um, and you can dance with them. So you can sort of book them up and dance with them. So single gentlemen can go to clubs and have a partner to dance with. It gets a little hazy somewhere exactly, you know, where dancing <laughs> dancing mm-hmm. stops and other things start. Um, so she will, especially... Uh, especially with some of Kate Merrick's women, um, they did go up Mer- uh, Dante Stresses. There were some rumours about some of them who knew things about their customers. Um, so she was sort of indicating that she would spill all the beans and things like that. Um, so her biography is not as scandalous as you would hope, but really interesting. Her manager, Richard Carlyle, um, who actually managed the clubs for her, also wrote a biography. Again, lots of scandals and lots of interesting bits and bits and pieces and information about drinking. So this one of the big things about these nightclubs is, is the tension between um, legally drinking and illegally drinking. So they write a lot about their, their ways of uh, getting around the licensing laws at the time, which were pretty strict. So what was a legal drink above board? What could you have in one of these clubs then? The licensing laws are really complex at this time. Um, So um, when the First World War comes in, um, we start getting really strict licensing laws. There is a real concern that people, especially the working classes, who are meant to be making the munitions and working in the factories, that they're drinking too much. So they put really strict legislation to prevent that. Um, this does off, obviously stop some of the, the, the rich people enjoying themselves as much as they would like, but on the whole, they get away with it. Uh, we get new licensing laws in 1921 after the after the First World War has ended, and they are, again, very complicated. So there's laws for pubs, there's mm-hmm. laws for private members' clubs, there's laws for dance clubs, there's laws for restaurants, and they're all slightly different. Um, but one of the key things is the, the serving hours. Um, so if you have a license, if you have applied for a proper license and been granted it, you can serve alcohol between certain times. You know, that's that's a fairly standard thing. Um, you see lots of these nightclubs either not bothering with the license, so they just start serving alcohol and hope they don't get caught. They usually do. There's lots of police raids at this time. But what happens? They just move somewhere else. They don't. It doesn't really matter. And you can make so much money in such a short time from selling alcohol, um, especially if it's a, a, a late night club or an, a, you know, one that hasn't a license. You can pretty much charge what you want. Um, other clubs, you just, again, it's like a lock-in, isn't it? You just carry on serving after the, after the time that you're permitted to. Uh, Kate Merrick 
at the 43 Club. Now, she started off not having a licence, and uh, there's great stories of her serving um, uh, serving neat liquor in teacups, um, oh, cool. which you'd more, establish, you'd more think about American prohibition than here. Yeah, well, so I've got you, books of alone in my head then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So she was serving alcohol in teacups, and if they were raided, everyone sort of chucked the alcohol on the floor and pretended they were drinking tea. Uh, a bit later, she got her proper license, but just carried on serving after hours. And there was different prices, you know. So if you ordered a bottle of champagne during legal hours, it was you know a certain amount. If you wanted a bottle of champagne or a bottle of whiskey, because they served whiskey, uh, at, I love this idea. Not only were there tables, but you could order a bottle of whiskey and they just bring it to you. Um, <laughs> so you know you could order that, but it would be triple or quadruple the amount after hours, and so would cigarettes and food and any of those things. So they would make an absolute packet with those late night drinking. I suppose, I suppose, when you're coming back to where the point where you're saying that the the clubs are, are ephemeral, if they're needing to shut down, they can do because the 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 emphasis isn't on the actual physical location of the premises. Yeah, and um, and sometimes it's it's important to obscure uh, where the premises is. Uh, I mean, I mentioned Kate Merrick a lot because she is one of you know the biggest names, especially in these sort of illegal and slightly dodgy nightclubs. Um, but she, at the 43 club that she had, um, you know, she started off on the ground floor. That got raided and closed down. So she opened the, uh, another club, which was called the St. John's Club, on the floor above. Um, she obviously owned or, you know, le- uh, leased the entire building. So the St. John's Club opened on the first floor. Um, but everyone still called it the 43. And you, they would pretend to go to the first floor and actually go to the bottom floor and carry on as normal and then St John's got closed so she went to the next floor and then by the um and once you get raided you get you might lose your license for like 18 months or something so by the time that she'd worked her way up the top of the building the original 43 was open again so she just went straight back there she's going up and down in this building and she did this with other places as well there was um a, a, a location on regent street i think it's 180 regent street and she had the silver slipper in the basement and then there was another club like on the first floor you know around the back and that is just you know the licensing laws were quite strict but there were so many loopholes um yeah. and people were just exploiting them um as much as they could she's a woman in business in the early 20th century in, in something that's actually quite high risk. You're talking about police raids and that. I mean, there's, I mean, she was a mom, wasn't she, as well? So yeah, how did yeah. she juggle it all and what got her into it, do you know? She's an absolutely fascinating example. Um, <laughs> I don't know even know what, in Earth, I don't even know what I was going to say, an example of what. She is a fascinating story. So she was uh, uh, born in Ireland, um, was married to a, a doctor um, in like in the southeast, I think it was. It's a bit hazy exactly what happened. They divorced. She said that he'd had an affair. He always denied it, you know, that type of thing. But she was left with like five kids to the upshot is she had five kids that she needed to support. So she um, had a bit of money. Her family was wealthy, so she had a bit of money. And she basically mm-hmm. seemed to have answered an advert in the paper for an investor uh, and a manager in a nightclub. Um, and she's 
she sort of basically answered it, invested some money. Again, it's a little hazy exactly. And, you know, these things mm-hmm. where legend starts and actual truth uh, begins, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. Um, she, she, somehow she got in there. She ran and this club is called Dalton's. Um, it's in the basement um, uh, next door to the Alhambra Theatre, which is now the Odeon in Leicester Square. Her partner was, uh, was uh, John Dalton or Jack Dalton. Yeah, so she starts running this club. Um, and it becomes really popular really quickly. It also gets raided very quickly because they do not have a license. And when they get raided, um, there's quite a few court cases around it because uh, it's the, the undercover police who have been in there and, and been watching them for a long time say that there's uh, lots of sex workers on site. Uh, yeah. Um so there's there's court cases and trials and all sorts of things. They lose their license, but she's already opened another club. We Kate Merrick's always opening clubs all the time. So she's already opened another club on Charing Cross Road. Um, you know, and that gets raided, but she'd already opened the 43. It's a license to print money at this time. Um, and she is incredibly clever. Um, but yeah, also has to be incredibly tough as well. Um mm. You know, she's she's right on, you know, she's right on the line with the law most of the time. Sometimes, obviously, she's crossing over, but she tries as much as she can um, while still wanting all the money and the profits, of course. Um, you know, but she and she goes to prison. Um, so she's very clever with her, her dodges, but she ends up going to prison, I think it's at least three times. Um, and she's not a young woman at this point, so she's going to... Um, She's going to prison for six months. Uh, you know, it breaks her. It's hard. You know, she she's sentenced to six months hard labour for this, and it really does break her. Um, but she's done what she wanted to do, which is again the really fascinating thing is she's made so much money. She's now living uh, in a in a mansion uh, just off Regent's Park. Mm-hmm. She's also married off at least two of her daughters at this point to the nobility. So, um, you know, one of her daughters has married the Duke of so-and-so and and the other one, the Earl of so-and-so. So so she's done really well there. So she's got connections. She's got money. um, And she's also got an empire. So um, so she keeps opening nightclubs, but she um, then gives some of them to her daughter. So one of her daughters runs the Silver Slipper on Regent Street. Um, it's really hard to actually unpick their empire because they use uh, fake names and register companies and all sorts of things. But she's got loads of nightclubs and her kids are running all of them. So she is like the queen of queen of Soho, queen of uh, even heading sort of into Mayfair area at this point. Wow. So she must have been William Johnson's Hicks thorn in his side then. He must yeah. have absolutely hated the idea of of her uh, getting away with so much. But it might be worth um, uh, uh, t- telling the audience um, who exactly uh, he is, first of all. So, yeah, so we have we have a police and we have um, a government in the late 20s who are really cracking down on, on nightclubs. Um, and uh, we have the Home Secretary, the police commissioners, and all of those are... Um, they, they're calling these places the scourge of London, essentially. Um, and Hicks, or Jicks as he's called, um, is one who 
who is determined to take down nightclubs, absolutely determined to. Um, if he, if there was a movie of this, I'm not sure if he's ever played in, in I don't know if they do Peaky Blinders or something when they come down to London, uh, whether he's ever in of this, but he is in a frothing rage about nightclubs. Um, he thinks they are dens of iniquity. He's a very religious man. Uh, he hates everything about them. Um, so he, I mean... At, the amount of money and police time that was spent in closing down these or trying to close down these nightclubs um, is absolutely. I mean, I've read so many of the files, um, the police files. They would go to nightclubs every night of the week. Uh, two or three police officers would go sit there uh, in plain clothes, noting down every single thing that was happening, whether someone had been served a drink after 11.01, you know, whether that woman over there was talking to someone that looked like she was transacting something. Some of the clubs they were going to, uh, whether uh, uh, white women and black men were dancing, and it's always that combination that they're very concerned about. They'd even go to uh, the very few uh, gay nightclubs at the time, um, and they would... uh, that man and that other man are dancing too closely together. You know, these types of things. We saw a man walking after another man into the toilet. And there's just pages and pages of these logs, um, um, you know, leading up to the raids. And then there are tons of raids. Um, uh, uh, he tries, or the Home Secretary and the police commissioners are trying to um, break the industry. So one night in 1927, they raid like 10 or 11 clubs, like simultaneously. Um, And they're trying to make it that, um, they're trying to make it a place that you should be scared to go to. So at the beginning, the idea that the police might come in and raid the club. See, it's it's part of the sort of frisson of it, isn't it? You're drinking your alcohol in your teacup. Maybe the police will come, but you're rich, so who cares? And you're young, yeah. so you're invincible. Yeah, and you're you're you're, uh, you're Bertie Worcester. You might get hauled up before the judge, but he's the father. He's the father of the woman that uh, your aunt wants you to marry, or something like that. There's loads mm-hmm. of things like that, so it doesn't matter. But by the late 1920s, and you start getting these serious raids, um, it starts becoming much more um, much more scary. Um, and there's one raid in uh, 1927 at the Kit Kat Club. Um, which is just off Piccadilly Circus. Um, and either the Prince of Wales had just been there or was about to be there. Um, but that was when they realised that the stakes had been right, raised because you don't mess with where the, uh, you know, the prince is or any of the royal mm-hmm. family. They had always been sort of, if they were there, no one would raid that night. But mm-hmm. it starts getting serious when even the Prince of Wales is not safe um, in a nightclub, not saying that he would be hauled up for the judge or anything, but his enjoyment of the of the of the evening would have been really, uh, you know, in, in, impaired by by something like that. Oh, and what was the, the the end then? Was this a, a a a war on on morals or cleansing of morals? What was going on? All sorts of yes, I mean all sorts of things. There's a real tension in the in the twenties. Um, you know, I said I said during the First World War, you start getting this idea that people are drinking. Not first starting getting this idea, but there's people are drinking too much. There's the rise of prohibition, uh, which is a worldwide movement. So there is too much alcohol in society that needs to be cramped down on. Um, obviously, in the 1920s in the US, they have. Uh, they enact prohibition. You know, this is a national um, agreement or national law mm-hmm. 
that you're not going to be drinking in public places. Um, and prohibition in the US was considered to be what a success. You know, it was considered to be the start of all the other countries following in line. Um, so it was really considered at the time that England might go dry at some point. So these nightclubs and this the amount of nightclubs and their sort of general um, booziness, because they are very boozy places, is a real, uh, you know, kick in the teeth for prohibition campaigners. Um, so, yeah, so you really, they really hate these places. <laughs> um, and they hate everything about them. They hate the dancing. So the dancing, we start, we've moved from tangos, which is vaguely acceptable. You know, you'd allow your daughter to tango at the, the Savoy of an afternoon, would you allow your daughter to Charleston or Black Bottom uh, at the Kit Kat or the mm-hmm. uh, Cat uh, in the 1920s? Would you allow your daughter to listen to the, the African-American jazz musicians that are incredibly popular? I mean, coming in from about 1919, uh, you start seeing jazz coming in and then you see Charleston and all of these things that everything that these moral campaigners do not want in in London they don't they do not want the drinking they do not want the 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 sexy dancing and this is one of the things I always have a rant about when I watch Strictly when they do the Charleston and it's them pretending to be Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins doing their jaunty Charleston I'm like this was a dangerous dance this was considered to be highly immoral and sexy Mm. you know I love it when they do the Charleston that's actually a it's not really like a proper what I would think of as a, a 20s nightclub Charleston. It was sexy. The Black Bottom dance is a sexy, sexy dance. Um, so, yeah, these are everything they hate. Uh, dresses as well. I mean, uh, women's, this is also the period where women's skirt lengths start going up a little bit. Oh, I was going to say, you see this in Downton Abbey, don't you? At the very beginning yeah. in 1912, you can't even see their ankles. Mm. And then by the time the 1920s, um, you're, you're getting just below the knee. Goodness. Well, you know, and especially in nightclubs, these are, you know, often basements. Some of them have mm. air conditioning, but not all of them. Um, and the air conditioning probably isn't that great anyway. Um, and so we start seeing dance. Uh, especially evening outfits where there's sleeveless dresses. So we're showing off, we're showing off our arms, the, uh, the the hems are going up on the skirts. I mean, heaven for fence, someone might take their stocking off if they're a little hot. Um, mm-hmm. So we're starting seeing flesh. And then yeah. there's flesh and then dancing and then drinking and smoking and makeup. You know, you can see why these places wouldn't be very popular. I suppose also when you're talking about the, the hemlines going up, uh, these legs are also moving. They're not just sitting demurely in a seat, are they? If you're no. going to be doing the dancing. So they're, they're going to ride up even more. Yeah, they, and they're going to be hitched up as well. So, you know, yeah. you're, in, you're getting into, you're doing your down and dirty Charleston. You've got your, your, your you're pulling up on your, your, your dresses. Um, I mean, this is also a period where uh, women would rouge their knees, um, you know, because they were they were showing off their knees at, at dancing or sitting or things like that. So there's focus on bits of the body as well, like the knees or the thighs or the arms. Uh, yeah, and yeah, like anyway, said, they're moving, they're sweaty as well. Sweat is also mm-hmm. one of the things women do not sweat. Um, yeah. 
Of course. Um, so there's there's sweat going on. I mean, you also at this time see the rise of deodorants as well. You know, um, razors, razors, razors. Yeah, they're yeah. shaving their legs, shaving their armpits. These are all things. I mean, it's it's out of control, quite frankly. So is it more a control on morals, or is it more control on women? Both. It is all linked to the fear, or all linked to the concern that women's uh, private uh, public space is opening out. Um, I mean, you can you can see it in restaurants as well. When you start seeing more restaurants accepting single women or groups of women to come and have lunch or dinner, you know, mm-hmm. that, wouldn't be, that wouldn't be some that wouldn't be acceptable in the previous century. But now we start seeing a woman having lunch on her own. Ooh. I know, it's just, uh, I just, uh, I, I'm getting quite dizzy just thinking about it. But, you know, having lunch on their own, going somewhere on their own, uh, groups of women going on their own, not being chaperoned. You know. mm-hmm. So, yeah, you, you've got this concern about what women are doing and where they're doing it. And Kate Merrick is not a good example of this, is she? She is off oh, on her yeah. own, you know, running these businesses out all night, you know, uh, doing all of these things. And Kate Merrick is particularly... There are other club owners doing the same as her, but the fact that she's a woman is is a, is is even more rage-inducing, I would say, for the authorities. Um, sure. So yeah, so there's all that, but there's also the general morals. There's a concern. There's a concern in the 20th century that yeah, it's all wrapped up in racism and eugenics and all of these things. But that we've lost our moral compass. Um, you know. People, uh, as a country, we're not as strong as we used to be. So these are all things, it's all wrapped up in in, in all of those um, all of those discussions that are being had outside, they're being, uh, outside of nightclubs are being had about the education system, the general health of the population, the food that they eat, everything like that. So there's just this, this, this concern for the mora- morality of the country. And, the, and the, the, not only the morality of the country, but the actual continuance of the British Empire as well, isn't it? You know, there's all of these things. Yeah, the early 20th century is 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 a rotter for all of these types of discussions. I think what's what's different here compared to other lockdown um, of of behaviour uh, in previous uh, centuries is that usually it's the poor people that get the treatment. But with the nightclubs, these are the the top elite. So yeah. is this because they're also the they're going to be the officers and the generals in the army and uh, and leading society? Is this where they're so- talking from? You know, you you're focusing on the top now rather than on the on the mass of the people. Is that where they were going? Yeah, partially. I mean, there there is there is a concern that this this weakness has extended everywhere. Um, even to the to the nobility, um, I think also with the nightclubs. Um, I think it, it there is a broad spectrum of nightclubs as you can as you can imagine. Uh, you know there are the top ones. Um, I've also talked about there um, some of the queer spaces, some of the places that. Um, I mean, I, I'd also say that most of these nightclubs are white only as well. Um, so once you start finding nightclubs that are being run by Jewish people, nightclubs that are being run by queer people, uh, and being run by and for that community as well, um, mm. so they those clubs 
really get the brunt. So the posh clubs, the police will come in and you know blow their whistles and and everyone's out and you have to take the names and see you in court the next day the the places that are considered to be even less uh yeah even more of a moralistic issue um you'll see arrests on the night you'll see people dragged to prison um you'll see their details being leaked to the papers as well um you know on the whole the raids and the top clubs you don't see the names of the people who were who were detained or sent home or whatever. When you get those spaces where it's considered to be, um, like I said, the, the, there's, a, there's a quote that I'm trying to, um, to think about, but it's really difficult because the language they use about these places is also so awful. <laughs> you know, it's, it's difficult to describe exactly how they were thought of. But yeah, there was no pity, no sympathy, nothing for those people. Those people's names would be in the press the next day, uh, especially the, the, the gay club raids. Um, long lists of every man that had been found there, their name, their age, their occupation. They would lose their jobs. You know, this is high stakes stuff. Uh, yeah, so, you know, you, you can see a difference within these spaces of the way the people were treated. But yeah, there is that feeling that, that even at the top levels of society, you know, our betters, even they are part of this moral degeneracy that is affecting the whole country, and that needs to be stamped out. And the other thing with the central nightclubs, like the Kit Kat off Piccadilly and all of these big ones, um, is that they're very uh, they're tourist sites as well. They are they are places where um, where Americans will come to, where overseas visitors will come to. Um, and there's the idea that we don't want our London to look like that. We don't mm. want that to be the impression that these visitors get of London, of these uh, drunky Bertie Worcester types, um, you know, <laughs> drinking all their champagne and, and then getting in their car, which they can park obviously right outside the nightclub, get in and drive home. That's not the type of thing that they want to to show. And also when there's lots of money and lots of illegal stuff, we also start seeing gangsters coming in. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not the side of London they want to show. So, I mean, Soho was obviously, you know, brimming with, with turf wars and, and gangsters and people controlling different pockets of it. And occasionally they would erupt into fights and these would often be late at night in nightclubs mm -hmm. as well. So these are not the place, this is not the, this is not our London, I think is the message. Yeah. And what about um, bigger things like, like the Great Depression? How did that impact on, on the nightclub scene in London specifically? Well, we do see we start seeing a lot, uh, a lot less Americans coming in and American money is quite key in the years, especially after the First World War. Um, we see, uh, you know, a lot of American servicemen around. We see a lot of uh, after prohibitions enacted, uh, rich Americans would come to London to drink <laughs> that would mm -hmm. be part of a thing to do um so we see so the, with the depression we start seeing a lot less people coming in the hotels for instance their bookings are down um so we just see a lot less money swilling around in general and yes there are there are casualties amongst the british nobility as well people lose their money they lose their you know their savings um i don't know how much it is to do with the depression all the crackdowns or any of these things or just a natural cycle. But into the 30s, we start seeing a different style of nightclub, which is usually about, you know, it's, it's exploiting a different type of loophole. But also, 
you know, I, I, I would have to say that I think the depression does does affect as well, because once you start seeing a massive shift in a style of something, you know, mm. you have to look around and see what's exactly happening in society that would, would make that. And it's not always they've changed the law. <laughs> you know, there's, there's different rhythms and different patterns and different different types of money and availability of money coming in. Yeah. And how do you think London's nightclubs uh, contributed to the city's artistic side, you know, and the cultural elements as well? I mean, these were beautiful places that they, they spent their time, so they must have been quite opulent inside. Did that reflect on anything else that we saw later on in London, the hotels or anything? You know, wherever you get a group of like-minded people, and they would be like-minded people, the arty people would find, you know, their place, the, the sporty people would find their place, the people who liked to be right, you know, the, the people who, who liked, what did they call it? They called it slumming. So the posh people going to some of those, uh, you know, sort of slightly illegal nightclubs, they'd call it slumming. Although the descriptions of these nightclubs do not sound like slumming as far as I'm concerned. It's all beautiful designer chairs and art deco this and art deco that. Um, yeah, so you, you get different pockets of people and, and you know, relationships are formed. Um, so uh, so you, you find some artistic clubs. So the Gargoyle, which I mentioned earlier, that was considered to be a very artistic place. Um, they had, uh, oh, oh, uh, it was all decorated by Matisse and you know, absolutely sumptuous surroundings. Um, and it would be the place for artist people to go. Uh, they offered a discount on membership for the deserving artistic poor as well was one of those things. So that's basically posh people who want to be artists who aren't, you know, maybe they're being cut off from the family wealth or something. I think, but they I think I that Fred Astaire went to that one in, in uh, 1928. Okay. He was performing at uh, what's the Empire Theatre in Leicester Square now. So uh, oh, at the time, that makes sense. Going to. Yeah. 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 Sometimes you get the um, artists being supported as well. There was a um, the Cave of the Golden Calf, which was around about 1913, and the owner, um, but there was lots of the artists around um, at the time, and she got them to paint the walls and paint the walls, decorate the walls, put a mural on. Um, they, they performed there as well, did readings and things like that. So all of that, st- you know, that stimulates that artistic scene, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, totally. And what were the popular drinks then? I know you mentioned whiskey and champagne, but were there any particular iconic cocktails and unusual ingredients that they were using? Well, again, depends where you are. So if you are at one of those illicit clubs, you are going to be drinking gin, whiskey, champagne, things that are easily um, easily hidden, uh, easily, uh, easily put back into the back room. Mm. Um, in terms of the... In terms of uh, extending out of sort of that nightclub space into restaurants and, and cocktail bars as well. Um, I mean, the big cocktail bar at this point is the Savoy American Bar. Um, and it's the bartender Harry Craddock is in there from the 1920s. Uh, in 1930, he publishes the Savoy Cocktail Book. Um, mm-hmm. It's still, I mean, original editions of it goes goes for thousands of pounds. It's still being reprinted today. I think it's a couple of thousand recipes, and they include all the classics. So you'll see the the Manhattans and the um, and the martinis. Uh, what else do you have there? Yeah, you know, yeah, all of those wonderful classic ones. Um, 
favourite drink from the period um, comes from 1934, I think it is, um, and it's called the 20th Century. Um, and this is named after the 20th Century train, uh, which is Chicago to New York, New York to Chicago. And in the early 30s, they um, re- they um, it'd been running for quite a long time that route, but they they'd rejigged it and made this beautiful Art Deco streamlined locomotive the 20th century and then carried beautiful 20 uh, beautiful Art Deco carriages mm-hmm. um, as an absolutely gorgeous beautiful 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 train so they came up with a cocktail to celebrate it um, and I, it was in it oh yes and it is the, it is 1930s in a glass I would say 40 millilitres dry gin mm-hmm. 20 millilitres Lillet Blanc uh, 20 millilitres, a chocolatey liqueur, that's the key thing. Oh. And then the rest is l- uh, lemon juice. Ooh. So it's that mixture of a chocolatey liqueur, so it's a creamy chocolatey mm-hmm. liqueur, and lemon. And now you think that that would, like, split, but it's actually yeah. um, absolutely beautiful. Um, actually, no, you wouldn't be able to use uh, Bailey's because it's too creamy. Hmm. I might have to try and remember what exact... Um, what exact name was that? I've got, liqueur, some, um, I've got some chocolate um, Mozart liqueur at home. I think that's <laughs> the I'm thinking yeah. that might, might work. It's a clear one, but it's quite a thick, clear. Um, anyway, it's absolutely beautiful. And that chocolatey and lemon is so gorgeous. And now that was created um, by the bartender at the Cafe Royale um, uh-huh. in, in the early 1930s. Um, and it was so beautiful. And actually, it's still on the menu there. So um, a couple of years ago, it was a couple of years ago, I went back, I went into the Cafe Royale, uh, they've got that green bar there, um, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I went and had one, and it was just so beautiful. And it's called the 20th Century, and it wasn't one of the hugest of most popular cocktails of the time, but mm-hmm. it's absolutely stunning, and it's, you know, created in by the bartender in one of the, the London... The London hotels. Um, you know, I just I think it's a great little, great little story. Fantastic. I find it creme de cacao. Mm. I had creme de menthe in my mind going, no, that's the wrong thing, yeah, but I knew. Exactly right, yeah. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, I might have to uh <clears throat> venture to there myself, the Cafe Royal, and have and have a 20th century cocktail. It, it, it is beautiful. It's really nice. I'm sitting in in it's not the exact spot, but sitting in the place where it was where it was made is pretty special. Yeah, it is something special bringing it home like that. Now, my final question to you um, is: Looking back at the 1920s and 30s, specifically, which aspects of London's nightclub scene do you believe to have been the most impact on city's nightlife and culture today? I actually think it's 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 the bad things about it um, that has the most impact. I think it is that that moralistic um, posturing of the police. Um, I think it is the legacy of the raids, um, the over strict licensing. Um, I think we're left with a lot of a lot of the tail end of that, and that came that you know that went into the second world war it went into the 50s it went into the 60s it and you know further on and it's still with us today um 
I, th- I saw a really interesting discussion on, on Twitter the other day, which was about Soho. Um, and it was about, because um, uh, Greg's is looking for a, a, a late night license to have. I've seen this. And the police there. are worried about uh, bad behaviour and they're yeah. selling sausage rolls. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's the opening hours. People do live there clearly. You know, it's it's the whole thing. Um, but I, one of the comments um, underneath, the, 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 the whole the whole thread and a whole discussion about it was some, was about how in the good old days um, people didn't drink and behave in Soho like they do today, and I just thought, well, that's an absolute absolute nonsense. You know, we've always used those those public spaces, those public central London spaces, as a playground uh, to to sort of have some of our worst behaviours. I've certainly had some of my worst evenings around there. Um, But, you know, it's always been like that and always will be like that. What I think is the legacy is that moralistic um, aspect of it. Um, That it, there's always the idea that it was better in the good old days. Um, And it definitely wasn't. So I think that's our legacy that we look I think that's the strange, weird legacy that we can still look back on that fairly recent history and still think that it's better than it is today, even though it's arguably absolutely exactly the same with people pushing the loopholes, push, people uh, staying up too late, drinking too much, having all that bad behaviour. Um, but it's, it's that moralistic attitude towards it that I think means that no one's ever really got to grasp with it. No one's ever been able to effectively... Um, effectively look after that that area and that space um, because we're always too busy judging the behaviours there rather than uh, actually dealing with them in a modern a modern sensible way um, I, a lot of a lot of people would also say that's a, an issue with with English particularly or British um, drinking culture as well but it's that sort of all of that in a microcosm yeah I think yeah, you're right. I think with someone commenting about that, there is a danger of looking through uh, rose-tinted glasses when you're looking back in history. And you yeah. can all all you'd have to do is look at uh, Hogarth's uh, um, Gin yeah. Lane, or yeah. indeed we Jekyll and Hyde when he's writing about the French mothers feeding their children gin first thing in the morning. That's the 1880s. So yeah. behaviours have changed in one way or another. Maybe it's just that uh, it's the lack of knowledge and education, and also that holding on to a comfort blanket that actually didn't exist. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's absolutely brilliant, Lucy. I mean, there's so much to get involved in here, isn't it? I mean, you start talking about one thing and it leads to another. And there's also this big cycle of how um, all the elements in terms of the, the style of dancing and the, the drinking and the, and, the, and the costumes and the behaviour of the clients and also then the behaviour of the managers and the police, it, it, they just feed into each other, don't they? It is. It is such a rich area of history, a uh, rich area of so- social and cultural history. Um, I, I, you know, I, <laughs> it's probably quite clear. I'm very passionate about this area of history. Um, I think there's there's a lot to learn from from nightclub history. Brilliant. Now, Lucy, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That's all for now. Until next time. <laughs>